Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us on this Wednesday. Coming up on the program, we are going to continue talking a little bit, not the entire show, but a little bit more as people still have questions about the BC vaccination card, that certificate. Maybe you are one of the, what was the number, 400,000 people who got online and downloaded, were able to access the card. A lot of people being a little frustrated, saying nobody said you had to take a screen grab of it if you didn't have the services app to store it. So a few wrinkles still being ironed out. We'll talk a bit more about that. Also taking a look at where things are with the federal election campaign and a new campaign, nothing to do with the federal election in Whistler. And it's urging residents there to take some small steps, although some might dispute how small the steps are. We're going to check in with the mayor of Whistler after the one o'clock news. It's a campaign for climate action, for action against climate change, but will it actually make a difference? Right now, though, let's talk a little bit more about what things are going to look like come September 13th. We consulted all long weekend, and uh, and I think the government's got this right. Essentially what they've done, and, and it makes a lot of common sense, is they've, uh, they've excluded quick service restaurants, which makes sense because those transactions are short and sweet and people don't hang around. On the other side, basically licensed restaurants will have to check the vaccine card. But I just downloaded my card. It's really simple. And you'll just simply have to show that card, show your ID, and that's about how simple it's going to be. That was Ian Tostenson speaking earlier today. He is with the BC Food Restaurant and Food Services Association. Let's bring back on the program Owen Coomer, the operations manager at the Tap House in Coquitlam. Owen, thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah, no problem. Thanks very much for having me. What are your thoughts on how things are going to look come the, thir- the 13th? Well, um, <laughs> I think it's going to be interesting, that's for sure. Um, I I know that with time, I think that it's going to be quick and easy, but I feel like it's probably going to be problematic for the first you know week or so, getting everybody back in line and, and understand kind of what the process is and how it's going to look like for us. Um, I mean, you have to imagine that um, even you know, how simple it is to scan and everything like that. They're referring to things like, well, you know, we always, you know, check people's ID. Oh, we just have lost Owen on the line. We're going to reconnect. I think that happened last time we talked with Owen as well. No worries. We will reconnect with Owen right in the middle of that sentence too. And I felt like he was about to say something really good. Of course he was. We will get him back on the line. Uh, We're talking about the vaccination card. A lot of people a bit frustrated. I know the website was paused this morning to deal with the large number of people trying to get onto the site. As Adrian Dix, the health minister, said, about 400,000 people have already gotten their cards, been able to download their cards. So people are clearly doing this. All right, we have reconnected with Owen. Owen, can you hear me? (laughs) Yes, I can. I don't know what happened there. (laughs) That's okay. Uh, Well, at least people know that it's live, right? Yes, (laughs) that is true. Uh, Exactly. So so what I was getting at is is that, you know, even when I was talking to the, the government liquor store when I was picking up my liquor last we were just talking about it. I mean, we don't check everybody's ID. I mean, you know, we check probably 5%. Anybody that's under 30 is kind of the, the idea. But, like, we have a lot of regulars in the day that are 60 and 70 years old that are coming in, and they're coming in there daily. And it's just going to be very uh, unique and challenging for us because normally – you know, these people can walk in and, and, and everybody knows them and so on. It's just now having to be like, sorry, I need to get your driver's license, or your passport or something like that with your document. And even though they might come in every single day, 
you know, we're going to have to check them. They, they can't, it can't just be just automatic walking in because of perception and everything. And then mm-hmm. I was thinking about just even things like, well, how many times people actually leave to take a phone call or leave to have a smoke or leave to, you know, are we going to have to go back to the stamp system, you know, or because you can't just have one person remember every single person that, you know, has been in and out. And it's just, again, it's just going to take time. I think just to kind of figure out exactly how it's, how we're going to facilitate this, you know, I, obviously we don't want people sneaking in. We don't want to like, it's, yeah, it's, it's going to be challenging. I, I don't think it's as simple as, Oh yeah, just automatic. I mean, we, our, our facility uh, in Coquitlam holds 444 seats, you know, it's 510 in Guilford. When we're busy, uh, like, you know, at UFC night or, or, you know, when we come back to football season and stuff like that, we have groups and groups coming in and they'll come in at the same time. You know, to have to stop and check every single person, you know, going forward, uh, I just, I, I think it's just not going to be as smooth. But I mean, again, we're, we're just making do with what we have. So, No, that, that makes sense. What about the reader itself? Do, because I heard somebody else mention this, that restaurants, they thought, and this was before the announcement, they thought restaurants might have to purchase the software or purchase things or are staff members going to be using cell phones? Do you know how that's going to work? Well, from what I've gathered, it sounds like on the 13th, that's when our businesses can download this app just like everybody else. And so what I would assume is, is that I'm going to have to have probably an iPad. Um, I, I mean, I don't know any staff member that would be probably comfortable, you know, to have their own personal phone, which, you know, it, it, even in our policies, you're not supposed to have cell phones on the floor. But bottom line is, is, you know, to scan, because, again, what happens if, you know, based on everything, maybe, you know, WorkSafe or liquid inspector, whatever, maybe they want to check that over. I, I just don't want to be, you know, handing over personal, you know, property to people if that's the case and you know have somebody have to use their own your own stuff so i I would imagine that either we're going to be having to purchase you know like i said an ipad or something like that that we'll just end up having to use it but again haven't really been advised as to what it is because even a couple of days ago somebody said that there is a piece of equipment that we have to purchase but i don't think it's likely i think it's a software program like an app that we're going to have to get right but even that like you said if you have a game night or a busy night and suddenly there's a huge number of people wanting to get in not only are you now technically iding everybody but if you're doing it with one ipad that's going to be a delay as well Oh, hundred percent. I mean, that, that, this is this is the case. I mean, the, the, this is why it's going to be very challenging. And I know a lot of businesses are a little, you know, upset by the fact that are we going to have to have more hosts on, or are we going to have more security? Are we going to have to have somebody? Because again, it's not like it, it's not like we just have you know four or five people come in, you know, at, at every hour. You know, I mean, there there could be hundred people that come in with the hour, and if it takes just let's just say 30 seconds per person. I mean, to scan, 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 scan. Like, I, I, you know, I don't want there to be a lot of trouble. A lot of people might be like, you know, to heck with this. I mean, I don't want to be waiting. Like, so they're, they're maybe just getting takeout of it on body supporting. Like I said, I mean, it's, I don't think it's, I think it's going to take time. I just, we have to figure it out. And, and I wish the government would give us a little bit more notice of, or even by just giving us the app in advance, just so that we can test it out to see how long things take and what it looks like so that we can get the staff trained. But can you imagine we have to get the app exactly at the same time that they're doing the passports? Like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you train people and, and to see? We're, we're learning at the exact same time. So I'm just glad it's on a Monday rather than them launching it on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, yeah, I guess you can be thankful for that. What yeah. do you see happening in a scenario where somebody arrives to come into the restaurant and their phone battery, say, is at 1% and their phone dies? 
Yeah, agreed. You know, I mean, is uh, now all of a sudden we're in charge of you know charging their phones so that they can come <laughs> out. I mean. Yeah, I know that you could say that it's the onus is on the customer, but you know, in these times, you know, like we're we're wanting to make sure that we're taking in everybody that we can, you know. And right. again, I don't want. I, I, I guess it's it's fair. It, these are the challenges that we're going to face, and, and you're right. I mean, maybe we have to have plugs really close so that people can do it. But again, are they allowed to just wait in the, the you know the, the restaurant or the bar? I mean, is there like a now a, like an area where people have to sit? where they're only getting takeout because they're unvaccinated. What about the third-party delivery people? You know, like, they're obviously, they don't have to come in and, and get scanned. To take their stuff. Like, is there going to be a queue area? Like, these are, like I said, these are the things that we're kind of looking at, like, as for how our, our maintenance is going to look, you know, just upon what the time it's going to take and, and whether there's going to be long lineups for things, whether I'm going to have to have the right staffing, so on. I mean, I, I'm sure there's lots of scenarios that we're going to end up having to face and, we're just going to have to make do. Right. And I know the health minister was asked about this earlier today on Global and, and didn't really explain it. But I know this is not an initiative to push employees to get vaccinated. There's no requirement for employees of restaurants to be vaccinated. But that also opens up this scenario where you could have a scenario, couldn't you, where an employee just worked an eight hour shift serving people in your restaurant. But then technically, if that employee isn't vaccinated, would not then be able to sit down and have a staff meal. Uh, well, agreed, and I definitely did think about this as well. Um, they, it, it, to me, it doesn't make a lot of sense that an employee can work an eight-hour or ten-hour shift, serve you know X amount of people, and that same employee who's unvaccinated is not allowed to be in the restaurant at any other times. But you know, you were talking about staff meals, but you know, people are you know allowed to have a break after five hours. So if we're giving right. them a half an hour break. They probably are eating in the in the you know the premise, and how how does that make any sense? But I just don't think. Uh, I, I guess it's, to me, it's just I don't think a lot of things make any sense. I mean, even just hearing you know Ian talk about fast food restaurants and how that doesn't like it says fast food restaurant people eat in, in McDonald's all the time. You know, lots of people eat at McDonald's, and it's not a quick purchase. They, they could be there for hours. Mm-hmm. I know lots of uh, people like to go to Starbucks and sit in the Starbucks for hours talking with friends and things like that. I just, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I think they're doing the best that they possibly can, and I think that that's kind of what we have to go with, but yeah, I I think a lot of people would agree. Well, Owen, thanks. As always, it's great to chat with you. And hopefully we can talk to you again maybe the afternoon of the 13th or the 14th, and we'll see how things are going. Yeah, absolutely. No problem whatsoever. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for being with us. Well, if somebody was to ask you, have you made any small changes in your life when it comes to climate change and ways to lessen the amount of energy perhaps you use, thinking about emissions, and curious what your answers would be. In a few moments, we'll have time to open up the phone lines. But we wanted to talk about this because there is something happening in Whistler. It's called the Small Steps for Big Moves Campaign for Climate Action. And Whistler Mayor Jack Crompton is with us once again to talk a bit more about this. Hey, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's nice to be talking about something different, not talking about crowds and businesses shutting down, although my guess is we will talk about that again, but we'll save that for another day. What is this campaign all about? It's a year-long campaign to encourage every resident, every resident in Whistler to make small changes in their lives that will have meaningful impact on how to reduce 
their contribution to climate change at the core of the campaign is a real hope that uh, and a belief, I think, that when we all act together, our small steps become big moves. And so we need to match policy with uh, individual and, and family action um, to, to make it happen. So what are you actually asking residents to do? Well, each month we are asking them to consider uh, something different and new to add it to their quiver, if you will. So September, we're asking people to consider electric, uh, electric bicycles, vehicles, um, switching to electric in, in, in their homes. In October, we're talking about waste and asking people to consider their waste and, 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 and reducing it. November, we're asking everybody to get on the bus, ride the bus. Uh, December, we are asking people to green their gifting and consider what they give and, and how they give to people during the holiday season. Uh, and then each month after that, we have another one with this thought that we try it out for a month and then add it to the way we do things. And have you had any feedback from residents at this point? Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, push in our community toward action. And I think people are grateful for the opportunity to have the conversation and then get to work and be a part of, of the solution. A lot of times we look to governments to deliver the final solution, but we're big believers that it is both government and individuals that'll get us there. Do you, it seems like there's a, there's a bit of irony, perhaps, and not to suggest that Whistler's not also doing things, but here we have a resort to town. We've got the, the ski hills, we've got the chairlifts and these huge operations where people in non-pandemic times are encouraged to come there as a destination, to fly there from international locations. I mean, on the one hand, it's great to ask residents to take these small steps, but are they not doing that? Well, at the same time, we have this huge emitting company that's taking that that or operation that's taking place you know whistler's been thinking about this for a while I, the fitzsimmons creek that runs between whistler and blackcomb mountains there's a there's a uh, hydro project on that a microhydro project that actually provides enough energy to run both mountains and um so of course it's not just individual actions it is big corporate ones as well it has to be both um, one of the projects we've been working on for a few years is to get people out of single-occupant vehicles when they arrive at the Vancouver airport and into shuttles. And then when people are in town, live like a local. So you don't need to drive your vehicle around. You can ski commute. You can uh, get on a bike. And um, so you're right. It's not just what individuals do, though that's important. It's also big corporate moves. And, and that's why we call it small steps for big moves, because it's both these small steps, but then also the big moves that we need to do uh, as a community and as an organization ourselves at the RMOW. Uh, are there moves then, or are you aware of an initiative by Whistler Mountain or Blackcomb Mountain as well then for, for on a corporate level to reduce emissions? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the vision is for zero, and, and they have that as a corporate vision at, uh, at their head office. And then you know, these big moves that we have, we have six big moves that they are uh, a part of and, and working to deliver. We talk about moving beyond the car, decarbonizing our commercial transportation, reducing uh, visitor emissions, uh, zero emission buildings, um, improving our existing buildings and closing the loop uh, on a shift towards lower carbon consumption. So those big moves are things that they are very much engaged on delivering, as is uh, the hotels in our community, the restaurants, 
uh, and the other tourism providers. It's a, it's an all hands approach. If it's not everyone, we'll have uh, problems. Uh, looking at the list, and you went through some of the examples of what residents are asked to do. If we look at November, like you said, so November, the initiative where people are being asked ride the bus. Is there infrastructure in place in Whistler that if everybody suddenly started riding the bus, could that is that even possible? Yeah, Whistler has a really, really robust uh, transit system. Uh, in the early 90s, we decided this was going to be a fundamental link in the resort chain for, you know, employees to be able to move to our town and live there and work. They need to be able to get around without single-locking vehicles. So, yeah, there's a huge transit system that whenever people ask me what action they can take, I, I say, make local government expand our transit system by riding it. Uh, so we do have capacity to fill, and I hope we do. I mean, that that would be a good problem for me to have is a, is a need to add more buses. Uh, you also talked about reducing waste. I would imagine that's something that in Whistler it has already been top of mind. Even if somebody's not thinking of the bigger picture and the impact of that on the environment or on climate change, uh, simply because of location and access to landfill and and having to deal with your own personal garbage. Yeah, we uh, built a uh, composter uh, about uh, 15 years ago, which has been vital to lowering the carbon emissions of our um, waste stream. It means that we can compost our organics in Whistler, which is a really big deal. Um, But certainly that is an action that families can take that will have a big impact. That point source separation of of, of waste is something that really helps us do this uh, task well. And so it's one of those small steps that, that turns into a big move. Would you like to see other cities or municipalities adopt a, a similar type program? Uh, of course. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's um, unique to each uh, community. And I've been so inspired by some of the stuff that's happening in other uh, communities around our province and um, so I hope they look to us and I hope we look to them and I hope we, there's some healthy competition between our communities about how we can work together to get to a better place. All right. Just before I let you go, I know this isn't the, the focus or what we were talking about today, but I did want to ask you as well, with the, the vaccination card coming in, I know there are a ton of restaurants and places in Whistler, people that love to get out and be in those places. Are, are people ready, do you think? Are you hearing anything about concerns about that vaccination card coming into place on the 13th? Oh, certainly there's concerns, but I think if we've learned anything as a country through COVID, it's that we need to be nimble and flexible and responsive. And so um, I have a lot of faith in our community that we will deliver uh, on what is a big ask, but something that we can deliver on. Do you, I mean, do, you, do you see anything or for the coming ski season, ski and snowboard system, uh, do you anticipate that there would be a, a proof of vaccination requirement there as well? Or is there even talk of that? I haven't I, ha- I haven't heard about whether there'll be a proof of vaccination required to actually get on the hill, but so much of what happens in Whistler uh, is food and beverage uh, is related to, you know, community uh, and, and group events. And so if you're going to come to Whistler and spend any amount of time here, uh, you really need to, to be able to have a, a vaccine card to, uh, to, to just participate in what's happening in, in Whistler. All right, Uh, Mayor Jack Crompton, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us.
Thanks, Jill. Thanks for your interest in our town. Have a great day. All right, you too. Well, you may have heard this story on the news. 11 officers with the Vancouver Police Department injured or assaulted during various calls that all took place during the long weekend. And joining us to talk more about this is Sergeant Steve Addison with the Vancouver Police Department. Thanks so much for being with us. Steve Addison, are you there? I am here. Oh, there you are. Thanks so much for doing this. My Uh, pleasure. Thanks for having me. uh, 11 officers during one weekend. That seems like a really high number. It is. It's an unusual amount of uh, officers who are either hurt or assaulted in one weekend. We've we've talked previously and we, we have been seeing a Uh, quite a significant increase in the number of police officers being assaulted this year in Vancouver. But to have 11 officers either assaulted or injured while responding to calls in one weekend is uh, is, uh, extremely high and very unusual. What do you think is causing this? I don't think there's any one particular reason uh, why this is happening. Each case is individual. Uh, In some cases, it it may be somebody who's uh, resisting because they don't want to go to jail. Um, in another case, it may be somebody who's dealing with a mental health issue or a, uh, or possibly has uh, some drugs on board. And in other cases, we're seeing just uh, more of an anti-police uh, uh, sentiment that's uh, causing people to, um, to act out. Right, because I, I would imagine, and thankfully I've not been on the receiving end of an arrest in, in the city, <laughs> but when that happens, for the most part, our, our police, I would think, are trained to deal with this, know if they're dealing with a suspect that perhaps has a violent past or, or showing signs of being violent, and for the most part, this doesn't happen when someone's arrested. Uh, the vast majority of interactions that police have with uh, the public are very ordinary, and uh, by and large, the vast number of arrests uh, that do occur, because we do have to arrest people, uh, occur without incident. Um, we, that said, we uh, have encountered just this past weekend and really throughout uh, this year an increasing number of incidents where officers are either being hurt while they're uh, responding to calls or they're being deliberately assaulted by people uh, that they're, uh, uh, they're coming into contact with, usually during arrests while uh, executing their duties. A couple of these cases, uh, and the list that, that went out this morning, this was a release from the Vancouver Police Department. A couple of the incidents were calls where there were multiple officers responding. Uh, looking at one that happened on Powell Street in East Vancouver on Monday, uh, the release says that a suspect scaled a fence trying to get away. Officers were able to arrest him after a so- short chase, but three officers suffered injuries during the pursuit, and one actually had to go to hospital and get stitches. Is it mm-hmm. unusual? usual that we'd have that large a number that all three officers were injured? Well, this was a case where our officers were patrolling in East Vancouver and our, our officers, for the most part, work in partnerships. Um, so two police officers in a vehicle. Uh, this was a case where officers spotted uh, an individual that had a BC-wide warrant for a violent offence and they were familiar with this man and they went to arrest him and the man fled. Uh, causing them to engage in a, in a in a foot pursuit. Another officer uh, who was in the area uh, assisted in that foot pursuit, and the officers officers were injured because the suspect who they were pursuing ended up scaling a, a large metal fence. And as the officers um, uh, scaled that fence after him, uh, they ended up injuring themselves uh, quite bad. One of them quite badly, requiring stitches uh, on that fence as well. 
Um, another case that was also that it involved three officers being hurt was at a Kitsilano grocery store where police were called on Sunday to an individual causing a disturbance. Again, from what I'm reading from the release, there was a physical confrontation. Uh, one officer got cuts and scratches. Another had blood spat on him and a third had an injured ankle. Uh, again, people will hear that and think, well, is there perhaps an issue with training or how do we have a scenario like that again in, in a grocery store, in a controlled environment? to take down a suspect where all three officers end up getting hurt? Well, we know that policing is a, is a difficult job. Um, when police officers sign up to do this job, they know that they're uh, at times putting their own safety at risk to uh, assist the public and to keep people out of harm's way. Uh, however, um, there are instances, and like I say, the vast majority of cases of arrests that we make are made without incident, without any harm coming to the officers. However, there are cases where we are finding, um, unfortunately, um, people seem to uh, feel emboldened or empowered to take liberties to put our our officers in danger or to do things that are assaultive. And a, a, a great example of this is an incident that occurred on Monday when um, we had uh, two officers responding to a report of uh, a robbery. Uh, a man had been stabbed in the hand and had his bike stolen. Our officers responded to that call, arrested a suspect, took the suspect into custody without incident. While the officer was doing her job and informing the suspect of her, her rights, uh, her Canadian uh, charter rights upon being arrested, the suspect allegedly, allegedly spat in her face uh, and in her hair. This caused the officer to have to go to the hospital uh, to be evaluated out of fear of uh, communicable diseases. These are uh, examples of... Um, Incidents that we are unfortunately seeing more and more of uh, on a regular basis as our officers are going about doing their jobs. And you know what? Our job is hard enough as it is. Um, we, uh, we don't need people taking liberties and taking cheap shots and putting our officers in danger when uh, our members are simply going out and trying to do their jobs and, keeping, uh, and trying to keep the public safe. Right. And in a case like that, I mean, I think anybody hears that and and that's awful. And nobody in any line of work should be spat on, should have blood spat on them, saliva, what, what have you. Uh, in a case like that, then, does that change as far as the person who was arrested? Can you, is, that a, is there a charge involved with that or, or are there repercussions for doing that? Oh, certainly. Anybody who assaults a, a peace officer uh, will be arrested and charged under the criminal code with assaulting right. a police officer, yeah. Is there any reluctance on the part of police because everything we do now is caught on whether it's video camera, surveillance camera, somebody with a cell phone? Is there any reluctance on the part of the police to use force that they may have used in the past? No, we're all professionals. Um, We go out every day and do our jobs as professionals. And these incidents, um, however uh, unfortunate and alarming, will not uh, prevent us from continuing to do our jobs in a professional manner. Um, we, are, um, we are trained. Um, we are authorized to use force uh, when necessary and appropriate. And our officers will continue uh, to do so. And they'll continue to work uh, professionally and respond to calls, to, keep, uh, to calls from the public um, to keep the city safe. 
Uh, will anything change then looking at these numbers? And again, 11 of the officers, 11 officers with VPD injured during this long weekend. Uh, does anything need to change then to try and stop the number of injuries and assaults that you're seeing in that de- in your department? Well, the cases that we're talking about are cases that have occurred where people have uh, we believe uh, taken liberties. They've uh, they've either felt empowered or emboldened to uh, to lash out to assault police officers. So the behavior that really needs to change is the assaultive behavior that we are seeing uh, from a, a small number of the population that is that is choosing to do this. Um, like I say, our officers are are uh, very well trained, uh, extremely professional. We will continue to go out and we will respond to calls. We'll respond to nine one one calls. Uh, from the public, and our prime, public safety is our top priority, uh, and our primary goal is to keep the city safe. All right. Just before I let you go, it's been a, a rather strange and very sad uh, day in Vancouver today as well. Do we know anything more about what happened at the McDonald's drive through this morning that, that sadly led to the, the death of somebody going through the drive through yeah, this is this is a really tragic um, uh, incident that happened this morning. It's really still under investigation. What I know is that um, there was a man who was going through the drive-through at the McDonald's on Main and Terminal, and what we believe happened was he dropped something, possibly a, a credit card or a debit card, out of the car window um, as he was going through the drive-through. Um, opened the door uh, to grab that card, and somehow the car rolled forward. Um, the car collided with the building and um, and, and injured the man. In a result of that, he sadly uh, and tragically died of his injuries. Um, we know that's what happened. We're trying to find out now why that happened. Um, so our collision investigation unit is looking into it. We've got the car. We'll be conducting safety checks on the car to see if there was any mechanical issues or if there was some other reason that uh, that caused this to happen. But really, this is a really horrible uh, and tragic event uh, that has uh, taken the life of this this person and, and our hearts really go out to his family and his uh uh, his loved ones. Yeah, it's just, a, it's not uh, something, thankfully, that you hear about, but very, yeah. very shocking for people. Uh, I yeah. understand there was also uh, an issue in Yelltown this morning of a van that went careening into oncoming traffic or onto the sidewalk. Um, I don't have a, I don't have a lot of details uh, to uh, share with you on that. Uh, it's an incident that is still uh, under investigation. We're trying to determine exactly what happened uh, and why it happened. All right. We will leave it there for today. Sergeant Steve Addison, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for being with us. So we're going to talk a little bit now about a letter that has been sent out and it is urging doctors to reduce the number of virtual appointments they are continuing to have with patients and saying that because we have high vaccination rates and because COVID-19 is now a virus that is vaccine preventable, this is in the letter, it is time to get back to those person-to-person in-person appointments when possible. Well, joining me now to talk a bit more about this is Dr. Matt Chow, president of the Doctors of BC. Thank you so much for being with us. Good afternoon. What are your thoughts on this, the idea of shifting from more virtual appointments to back to in-person face-to-face? Right. So this is about finding the right balance between in-person and virtual care, because both are actually very important components of our healthcare system. And certainly we've had many patients call in, write us. Um, They've been on social media expressing um, their desire to see virtual care continue. And I certainly want to reassure people that virtual care will continue. 
but what this letter really speaks to is, is, is having that balance because some issues do need to be dealt with in person uh, and, and we want to make sure that, uh, that we are using both tools. Uh, the letter talks about the fee schedule and the fact that it was a temporary measure that was brought in as far as uh, allowing the fees to be claimed for virtual visits. So are there concerns from doctors that that is going to be taken away? Yeah, so I just want to clarify about that point. So yes, indeed, there were emergency uh, supports put in place at the beginning of the pandemic uh, in March of 2020 to make sure that the healthcare system essentially didn't grind to a halt. And so those, those uh, measures succeeded. Uh, we were able to continue caring for patients throughout the pandemic. And now the vast majority of physicians have resumed at least some degree of virtual care. We expect that support for virtual care, including um, within the payment schedule, will continue. But the trick is to make sure that, that the payment recognizes um, the, the different types of services that we provide, uh, the different amount of effort that might take to do virtual versus in-person care, and ultimately that it supports the goal of of making sure that patients receive the care they need, whether it is virtual or in person. Right. So when when the letter says in the line in the letter is the ministry is actively reviewing the current temporary fee codes and considering the appropriate path forward for virtual care compensation for the continued benefit of patients while also supporting our strategic focus on access and attachment. Um, so would it look different then, do you think, or would doctors then be okay with the fee schedule for a virtual appointment would be different than the fee for an in-person appointment? Yeah, I mean, what we're looking at going forward is probably supporting some type of virtual, uh, sorry, hybrid virtual and in-person model. So hybrid care, doing both. Uh, and many, many physicians are, for example, seeing patients in person on one day of the week, and then alternating that with virtual care day on another day of the week. Uh, Some physicians are seeing patients in person during the daytime and then doing some phone calls and virtual care in the evening, which which can be more convenient for some patients, uh, and and various uh, combinations uh, of of those different types of practices. Uh, So what I would expect going forward as we continue to discuss this with the Ministry of Health, the college, and other stakeholders is the support for some type of hybrid model going forward, which is, in fact, is what a lot of physicians are already doing now. Which makes a lot of sense. And certainly we've talked to people as well saying they would very much like the virtual aspect to stay when it is clearly a type of appointment that you don't need to be physically in the same room with somebody. It could just be a very short appointment, whether it's getting a prescription refilled or something that's not considered very major. Exactly. There are just so many... um, benefits to virtual care. There's so many situations where virtual care makes a lot of sense. You know, everyone's busy these days. Nobody's got time to, you know, take half a day off work to go and see somebody or wait in the waiting room. Um, and so virtual care just makes so much sense. You know, people in rural and remote areas, for example, who, who have hazardous travel, especially in the winter, there's just, there's just many, many benefits. But it acts as a complement to, to face-to-face care when it's needed for, for some types of uh, screening maneuvers and, and treatment and even relationship building sometimes that needs to happen uh, that can only happen face-to-face. Right. Uh, the letter also points at saying that potential drawbacks of providing only virtual care could result in unnecessary emergency room visits when patients are unable to access the necessary face-to-face visits. Have we seen that, unnecessary emergency room visits, because of going to more of a, a virtual model? So 
So there have been some concerns raised by patients, the public, and other physicians about uh, some folks that have been directed to emergency departments or have uh, or have gone there on their own accord because they, they did not have access to in-person care. Uh, this is certainly a concern for all of us because uh, it can lead to delays in care, it can lead to negative outcomes, and, and that's certainly something we want to prevent. So yeah, there, during the pandemic, we have heard these concerns. I think that's part of the rationale behind uh, sending out a letter uh, such as the one that we saw last week. Um, at the same time, again, you know, we've, we've got to look at both sides of the picture, which is, you know, the, the potential risks, which we know now how to mitigate, and then the potential benefits of virtual care, which, which we're speaking about today as well. Right. Would you say or do you know the numbers as far as how many doctors or members of doctors of BC have, in fact, gone back to seeing more patients in person? Well, I'd say the, the vast majority of people are seeing people in person, at, at least at, at, uh, to, to some degree. And it varies among different members and in different disciplines um, because some disciplines uh, lend themselves to virtual care very well. And others, you know, for example, if you're a surgeon or if you're delivering babies, it's pretty hard to do that over the Internet. And so those, those folks resumed in-person care or, or actually never stopped doing in-person care due to the nature of the, of, of the type of medical care they provide. So it's really been, uh, it's really been variable depending on, on the different types of practice and sometimes even within, within a particular discipline. Right. You talked as well about the we know what to put in place as far as keeping people safe when we're having these interactions that would be in close quarters, like a doctor's appointment. Uh, The letter itself says as well, COVID-19 is now a vaccine preventable virus. But I would imagine there's also going to be concern in that it's not it's not mandatory that somebody be vaccinated to come to a doctor's office. So we would have to continue as well with masks and and what other measures I I would imagine would be needed to, to stay in place to keep those places safe. That's right. So there are a number of measures that that we have been advised to undertake right from the beginning of the pandemic. And of course, our understanding of COVID-19 has changed over time. And so the recommendations have to change necessarily over time as well. Uh, Right now, when we're we're coping with the fourth wave of COVID-19, which is primarily driven by unvaccinated individuals, absolutely um, when we, we understand that someone's unvaccinated, we, we will take precautions, and that might include scheduling that person at a different time of day in clinics so that they are physically separated from people that might be more vulnerable, for example, people that are on cancer treatment, people that are immunocompromised, or even young children who are not able to be vaccinated due to their age. So, so there's uh, scheduling. Uh, there's also the potential that people might be uh, booked into different uh, areas of the clinic, different rooms. Uh, so that there's that physical separation. So there will be measures that that could be undertaken uh, to make sure that everyone is safe, uh, the unvaccinated individual as well as staff uh, and vulnerable patients. So do you see a scenario then when it won't be mandated, it won't be that you have to be vaccinated to visit these places, but you may have to disclose your vaccine whether or not you are vaccinated? Uh, well, I can tell you that a lot of doctors already are pre-screening people and asking for their vaccination status. Again, as, as you emphasized, uh, we are not permitted to refuse to treat someone that is unvaccinated because uh, at the end of the day, medical care is an essential service. However, there, are, there is screening that is already taking place in, in many practices uh, and, and has actually been taking uh, place since the beginning of the pandemic in terms of screening people for respiratory symptoms, for example. If someone has had recent travel history, if they have a cough, if they have a fever, uh, we've been screening for that from the, from the very, very beginning. 
uh, to make sure that uh, we're able to have the appropriate measures in place to, to see people safely and make sure they get the care they need. Which makes a lot of sense. What would happen, though, in a scenario if that screening was being done and somebody was asked for their vaccine status and they, they said they didn't want to answer the question? I think in those cases, uh, we would assume that that person is not vaccinated and, and, and carry forth from there. And so that person would still receive care, um, but we would have to make that assumption that they're not vaccinated uh, and potentially you know, schedule them uh, a little bit differently or, or have different measures in place again to, to protect vulnerable staff and vulnerable um, other patients. Uh, but that person would still get care. Right. All right. Uh, Dr. Chow, I wanted to ask you this as well, and not that I would expect that you would know all of the details of this, but there's a story that broke earlier today coming out of Kamloops, out of of Royal Inland Hospital, uh, of a woman, a 70-year-old woman who passed away in the waiting room. She was in the waiting room from 8 p.m. and she passed away around 2 o'clock in the morning. She still had not received treatment. The ER physician at that hospital uh, was quoted as saying that hospital is right now seeing the worst influx of COVID-19 patients by far that they've ever seen during this pandemic. Uh, We know that a bunch of nurses have resigned or left because they say they're completely burnt out. What is your response when, on the one hand, we look at this letter and we look at kind of getting back to -to face-to-face meetings and getting things back on track, but then we see something like this happen that shows uh, we're still really uh, being hammered by this virus? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you raised this point, and I did hear about this only minutes ago. And it's a tragedy. You know, I'm so very sorry um, that that this happened and and my condolences to the family. What this emphasizes is the importance of vaccination, because this wave that we're seeing in the hospitals right now, particularly in the interior and the north where our hospitals are under extraordinary pressure and we're seeing procedures being canceled um, and and so much pressure in in terms of our healthcare workforce as well, is it's being driven by unvaccinated individuals, unvaccinated individuals are at much greater risk of needing hospitalization, much, much greater risk of needing oxygen, of needing intensive care units days, and and perhaps even dying from COVID-19 compared to fully vaccinated individuals. So this isn't even a story really about virtual care and and in-person care. This is really a story about vaccination and just how important it is to make sure as many eligible British Columbians are vaccinated as possible. Yeah, I mean, this is a story of a 70-year-old woman who died in a waiting room because a hospital was overwhelmed, and much of that caused by people who have COVID-19 who aren't vaccinated. I mean, if that doesn't prompt people to get the vaccine, I don't know what would. Yeah, and I, you know, I also saw a tragic story out of uh, Island Health Authority where, where um, you know, a brother of, of a COVID-19 victim, you know, and uh, you know, was was speaking out about. You know, her, her or his sister who had, um, you know, unfortunately been convinced by conspiracy theories and misinformation to not get vaccinated. She ultimately became very ill from COVID and actually died from it. You know, that's that just breaks my heart because it's so preventable. It is completely preventable. We've got vaccine, you know, literally coming out of our ears in this in this country. We have so much supply right now and we just need people to, to take that vaccine so they can protect themselves and protect others. And and quite frankly, prevent the, the type of tragedy. I mean, we're going to hear more details in the coming days and weeks, I'm sure. But, on, on, you know, at first blush, it looks like this, this also could have been a preventable tragedy in the emergency department had our hospitals and our staff, you know, not been under such enormous, enormous pressure right now.
All right, Dr. Chow, thank you so much once again for your time and for coming on the program today. Appreciate it. You're most welcome.